got a sister who's suffering very greatly right now with cancer as well, both a, a breast and in her lungs now pretty badly, and uh, hard for her to breathe, so she's on oxygen. She's trying to do everything naturally in God's way. She hasn't gone chemo or surgery or any of those remedies that the medical profession puts out there. Um, so she's not in a lot of pain, and, but she gets panicky because she has trouble breathing. Her lungs keep filling up. So uh, Rebecca's up in Cedar City. I think everybody probably here knows her as well. She was here for a while. So you might keep Rebecca in mind as well. And uh, let's not forget Sharon Anders up in Michigan as well as uh, Tom and, and uh, Linda with their health issues as well. And do we just pray because we're all getting old? Well, most of us anyway. <laughs> anyway, those are things for us to keep in mind and to consider. Now let's go back to 1 Peter. <clears throat> Last week I covered chapter 3, and we'll get into chapter 4 today. Again, the theme being, overall, the hope that we have and the things that we need to do, according to Peter, to keep that hope live and well so that we can look forward to the kingdom of God. So he concluded chapter 3 by showing that Christ had gone back to his Father and has been put over all angels and authorities and powers. Uh, he hasn't fully taken charge here on the earth, obviously, or we wouldn't have Satan and his demons going about doing what they're doing. But he is certainly qualified by defeating Satan to be the ruler of this world and will shortly return to do just that. So he's there at his Father's hand, <clears throat> ready to take charge when the time is right. That doesn't mean that he isn't overall, and he and his father both in charge of the universe, but they are allowing Satan a certain amount of independence to do his thing for a time. And that time is almost over, and Satan is desperate trying to destroy all mankind because he recognizes that man is here to become God, even as he wished to be, and still wants to be, but is frustrated in achieving that because God did not create him for that purpose. Uh, he created us for that purpose, and that's the primary reason that Satan hates us so desperately and wants every one of us to die, <clears throat> not only physically, but eternally. So getting right into chapter 4 then, he says, "...for as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh..." Arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. Now, he suffered a great deal, even as he grew up, being branded by those around as an illegitimate child. And then as he grew older, he had a situation where he was obeying God, and no one else around him very much was. And when you're in that position where all the kids are going out and doing things they shouldn't be doing, uh, there's a great deal of peer pressure, and most succumb to it, but Christ didn't. So even as a child, I, I think we have to think back and realize that he suffered. 
I know I, I can look in my own experience in life when we first came into the church back in the early 50s that I was in a public school and uh, I couldn't participate in sports and various things because the games were on Saturday and because we kept the Sabbath uh, and the other kids at school knew that. Um, I was kind of isolated and in many respects wasn't one of them. Uh, I jumped on the bus and went home after school while the others played and did things in town. Part, part of that was because where we lived and part of it was because of the circumstance where we were seeking to serve God. So that was nothing like what Christ suffered as a child, but it, at least I can think about it and realize that the beliefs that I held caused a certain amount of consternation and persecution to some degree. And then as he grew older, of course, and began his ministry, uh, he was teaching things that were contrary to what the religious leaders of his day were teaching. He was upgrading the Old Testament to the New Testament, the New Covenant, and they couldn't see that. And then, of course, we always focus on the end of his life, where he suffered more than any human being has ever suffered, as far as being ripped apart and torn and bloodied and and persecuted and castigated. So he suffered a great deal, and the only reason that he had to go through that was because of us, because of our sins. Uh, he didn't have to come to the earth for his own sin or his father's or anybody else's. He came here because of our sins. So he says here that he suffered for us in the flesh. That's the only reason he suffered. And then the admonition to arm ourselves likewise with the same mind. In other words, we too will suffer in the flesh. Uh, we suffer health issues, wealth issues, um, relationship issues. We suffer issues between us and God because of our own disobedience and our carnal human nature. But we have to arm ourselves to have the same type of mind and approach to things that he had. Realizing we will suffer. We don't like to suffer. And people in our nation, for instance, have been taught that they should not suffer. That the government or whoever should come in and take care of them and provide for them and uh, give them universal health care or whatever the the thing of the moment is, so that nobody has to suffer, that everybody can have what they need. Now, of course, it doesn't work out that way, because suffering is innate to being human. It's part of the process, and the way we act one toward another on this earth causes all kinds of suffering that is brought on by man himself. But many of the things Christ suffered were brought on by the people around him. So he says, realize that suffering is part of this life. It's natural to it. You can't get away from it. But have the same mind toward it that Christ had. And then he explains, For he that has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. The more we suffer, if we know God or are beginning to find God or to seek God, the more we suffer, the more we turn to God. When things are going well for us, 
we tend to minimize God or forget God or let up on our prayers and so on uh, and sort of coast. But then when suffering or trials or trouble or tribulation hit us, it drives us to our knees again. So, suffering in the flesh uh, helps us cease from sin. It doesn't mean we've ceased completely, but we've quit living a life of sin because of, in part, the suffering that we have gone through. We should learn from our mistakes, in other words, and then not repeat them. But Christ learned from the things that he suffered, even as we must learn from the things that we suffer. So it's not strange that we have trials and troubles, tribulations, afflictions, uh, losing our health, losing our minds, losing our youth, you know, on and on it goes, uh, the things that we have trouble with. That he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. So God designed suffering into the program, into human life so that we might learn to turn from those things that create problems for us and to learn the will of God. Adam and Eve are a good example. They were given optimal conditions, as good as it gets anywhere on this earth, in the creation that they were put in. And in the circumstances, being very close to God, walking and talking with Him, being instructed directly by Christ Himself, and almost immediately, well, I guess you could say immediately, upon being tempted by Satan, uh, they threw all that away. Just bam, just like that. Because their human mind was susceptible to selfishness, carnality, envy, and all those things that we have fought through our lives. And they were absolute suckers, just, just like that. <coughs> So, as we grow, we learn. As little children, we learn to be careful how we climb up on things because when we fall off, it hurts. We learn not to touch stoves because they're hot. Uh, we t learn not to pull the dog's ear because we might get bit. There are just so many things that we learn physically from childhood on up. And the bigger we get, the bigger the mistakes, and the more we bring suffering upon ourselves. So God had to plan and design these things in here so that we would learn uh, about not only gravity, but learn about the works of the flesh as well. That when we break God's laws, we get in trouble. For the time past of our life may suffice us to have worked the will of the Gentiles. Uh, once we begin to be converted, begin to understand the truth, and begin to walk in God's ways, then things begin to change in our lives. Yeah, we used to live like the people around us. When we walked in lawlessness, lusts, excess of wine, uh, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries, Worshipping ourselves, worshipping things, uh, trying to get away with things. That's what lawlessness is about. And lusts and excesses of food and wine and various things like that, where we just kind of went along with the flow, doing what we wanted to do. And that's the way people are. 
We're supposed to be turning from those desires and appetites of the flesh that are done in a wrong way. I mean, we're going to have appetites of the flesh. We need to eat and drink and, uh, and so on. Those are natural, normal desires, but it's the misuse that's the problem. And that's the way the people around us are living. So we think like Christ did and do things in uh, temperance, and we stay away from those things that are completely wrong and use the things that are okay in balance and not overdo them. So that's the past. Now we have the present and the future. Wherein they think it strange that you run not with them to the same excess of riot speaking evil of you. The people around you, if you're trying to serve God and do things His way, are going to think it odd that you don't want to do the things they do. Or maybe you do want to do them, but you restrain yourself from them. Uh, But to them, doing what they want to do is... Fine with them. They don't think it's a problem. If I'm not hurting anybody, it's okay. Whatever it is. And they will speak evil of you if you do what's right. You who shall give account, verse 5, to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead. And that's something we have to always keep, hopefully, in the forefront of our mind, is that we have to give account to Christ himself and to the Father. We don't have to give account to man. Man is not our judge. Man cannot condemn us. Man can condemn you all he wants to, but Christ can resurrect you anyway. You know, man's judgment, man's condemnation means absolutely nothing in the larger scheme of things. Now, it may hurt, you may feel it, you may have emotional issues as a result of the condemnation or the judgment of men, Uh, But you should not let it upset your apple cart. In other words, Christ was chastised, misused, abused, treated wrongly, condemned by men, and yet he didn't let it upset his apple cart. He went ahead and lived his life as he ought to live it, and basically paid no heed or attention to what men thought of him. That was his mindset. Now, he was a man of sorrows because he saw a lot of sin and suffering, and he himself suffered abuse. But he did not let that get between him and God. He did not let it affect his approach to his Father in heaven. And we have to do the same thing. It doesn't make a bit of difference what somebody thinks of you. Don't let it worry you. Worry if you want to worry about what God thinks of you. (laughs) That's all that matters. He is the one who holds the keys of life and death. So, if people don't think you're doing things right, just be sure you do things right, and don't worry about what they think. It really doesn't matter. We give account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead. Only Christ can judge the dead. He can resurrect them. Uh, We're still alive, and we are under judgment now. The judgment is now upon the house of Israel, spiritual Israel. That's us. So we answer every day to the Father and the Son, and they're the ones we are to think about. You know what? If If you please the Father and the Son, what do men have to complain about? 
nothing. Now, they may not think you are, and they have their own opinions, but that doesn't really matter. God judges the quick and the dead. For for this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. Now, the gospel was preached by Christ. It was, at the time Peter wrote this, being preached by the apostles and others whom they had ordained. It had even been preached by Enoch before Noah began to teach as he built the ark. Uh, So, preaching goes back a long way, and people who are now dead heard some of that preaching, and in some cases they heeded. But... They also were judged by men in the flesh, people that have been preached to in the past. But what difference does it make? Even the men who preached to them died, they themselves died, and the ones who condemned and judged them also died. So the only one left alive of those who have died is Christ himself. And now that he is alive, he is our judge. So it doesn't matter about the past, those who were taught the truth and followed it, will again live according to God in the Spirit. Read 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians 4 and other scriptures and understand the resurrection. So, what difference does it make what men think of you? But the end of all things is at hand. Now, he says another thing to throw into this isn't just that you have this lifetime to live, but also the fact that we're nearing the end of the age and Christ's return. Now, Peter thought it was going to be at this point within his own lifetime, as did the other disciples, and Christ did not explain to them uh, that that was not the case. He allowed them to go on thinking that. Well, I I think now 2,000 years later, as we watch world events and what's going on around us, We know that we're at the end of the time that man has been allotted before Christ returns. So, if they were to consider it then, we certainly need to consider it now. The end of all things is at hand. Now, how should we think in that case? Be you therefore sober and watch with prayer. We need to be very serious very sober-minded, realizing that the time is near. I think as we age, even physically on the earth, we tend to think a little more seriously and a little more soberly as we get to the point where we realize that our own mortality is upon us. (laughs) You know, once you reach 60, 70, 80, 90 years of age, you know you're not going to live but a certain amount more time. And uh, you begin to think about that a little more. I didn't think about my mortality near as much when I was 20 as I do now. But I think about it more now, and, and the eternal judgment more now, perhaps, than I did then. So, the end is soon, whether, whether you're young or whether you're old. I mean, if you're old, your end might be real soon. But if you're young, you think, well, oh, maybe i got plenty of time. Well, no, you don't. Because the end of this age is upon us. And uh, 
we all have a very, very short time period left before Christ returns. We are at that point. So whether you're young or old, you need to be very serious-minded and be seeking God because we either going to live forever or we're not. And that's what my sister and I talked about some and even prayed about together recently is it doesn't matter whether you live 30 or 40 years on this earth or whether you live 90 or 100 years. When it ends, it ends. Young or old. And then there's no thought in the grave. The dead know nothing. And you'll know nothing again until the resurrection. And which resurrection you're in then suddenly becomes very critical. <laughs> Are you going to be in the first resurrection when Christ returns or in the third and go into Gehenna fire? That's something to soberly and seriously consider. Now, most mankind is ultimately going to be saved. He says all Israel will be saved there in Romans 11. So God has a plan for those who have not been called, either during the millennium or the great white throne judgment, to have their opportunity. But ours is now. And we need to think seriously about that. because there is not much time left until Christ returns. Just a few years. <clears throat> In verse 8, above all things, maybe we should underline that or make sure we grasp, above all things. Everything else is under this, if you will. This is the most important thing. Paul said it there in 1 Corinthians 13, that love is the greatest thing. And Peter says it here in a little bit different words, where he says, above all things, have fervent love among yourselves. Now why? Why do we need fervent love? What if, why can't we just love God and be in His kingdom and everything be okay? Why do we need fervent love among ourselves? For love shall cover the multitude of sins. Now, every one of us has sinned in our past. Everybody, every, every one of us has sinned in our recent past. And every one of us is going to sin in our near future. We are not sinless. Now, we may not be living a life of sin like the Gentiles, as mentioned above in verse 3, but we still fall short of the glory of God and of the standard that Christ set. We have not yet reached perfection, obviously. And we still fight lust, vanity, jealousy, envy, greed, every kind of corruption that there is as human beings. Now, why did Christ come to this earth? He was sent to the world because God so loved the world that He would send His only begotten Son that they might not perish but have eternal life. Now, God's experience with men ever since that fateful day in the Garden of Eden has been miserable, except His Son that He sent down here. He's had a miserable time with every one of us because of our rebellion, our selfishness, are putting ourselves ahead of Him. Uh, it's not been a pleasant experience. You know? God looks down at this earth, and to Him it's just His footstool, as He says. And there are billions of people here. 
And every day, every day and night, constantly, it never lets up because the earth keeps spinning and it's day and night, day and night, day and night around the world. God sees murder. He sees adultery and fornication. He sees lying and stealing. He sees every kind of ungodly thing that you can imagine. He hears a cacophony of all kinds of weird music in this country and others. He sees every sees and hears every abominable thing that mankind can come up with. And he sees and hears it all. How can he stand it? Sometimes it's hard for us to put up with what little we have to put up with on this earth. Can you imagine the din and the confusion and the nastiness that goes up to God every day from nearly 7 billion people doing their own thing? I, I can't even imagine it. But he says he numbers our heads of our, the hairs of our head and not a sparrow falls that he doesn't see it. So does he see all the sin and degradation and wretchedness that's happening here? Yeah, he does. He sees us trashing the planet and polluting it, trashing and polluting our own lives and the lives of those around us. What manner of love must he have that he's going to save us from Satan and ourselves through Christ himself? So what manner of love was it that caused him to send his son here right in the middle of all this? Uh, Things were bad then, too. If anything, they're worse today. I don't know whether they're any worse than they were in Noah's day. But they were awful then, and they were awful when Christ was here, and they're getting worse every day on this earth. Now, he had enough love that the blood of Christ is big enough to cover the sin of all mankind. We need to think about that very deeply. Because he says he's going to judge us according to how we judge others and how we treat others. He made that very, very plain. We've covered it many times. We will be judged as we judge. We will be treated as we treat. That's a scary thought. But what he's saying here is that we're to have fervent love among ourselves... For love will cover the multitude of sins. Now, if Christ was willing to come here and live and die to cover the sins of all mankind, then we need to have the same attitude. Didn't he say here to arm ourselves with the same mind that Christ had? We are to have the same fervent love for each other that he has for the whole world. And not just our brethren only. Not just those who agree with us. But our love has to ultimately extend to the whole world like God's does. Where we want to be the bride of Christ, helping the world and teaching the world not to be sinners during the millennium and the great white throne judgment. So he's asking us to have the same kind of love, the same kind of mind that Christ has. That's a tall order because it's so easy for us to get frustrated, offended, angry, bitter with one another, condemnative of one another. 
But here he says that we have a part in love covering the multitude of sins. Now, your love for your brethren and mine cannot cover sin the same way Christ's blood does, can it? No, it can't. But we have our part, as many scriptures show, in covering sin, in putting sin aside, in forgetting sin, in forgiving sin. Nowhere does the Bible tell us to retain sin, does it? Now, it does say that the ministry has the power to either retain or set aside certain things that happen within the church. In other words, as long as it's something that's continuing, the ministry has to deal with it and tell the people how to deal with it, as Paul did in 1 Corinthians 5. But the ultimate forgiveness of sin is up to Christ's blood. I mean, whether that person repents and is brought back among the brethren is sometimes an administrative and a ministerial decision, but the ultimate judgment of whether Christ's blood covered their sin and then the kingdom of God is totally with Christ himself. So let's not confuse those. There's certain judgment that God gives the ministry to do, uh, and yet he says here that we should be covering sin and that if we serve Him and obey Him, that it will cover sin. In other words, we need to cover each other's sin. We don't need to advertise it. We don't need to repeat it. We don't need to point out sin. We don't run and hide from it. We don't sweep it under the carpet. But at the same time, we don't gossip and busybody and talk about other people's sins. It's our job, as is Christ's job, to help cover sin. Uh, There again, we can recognize it, but we don't have to be judgmental or specifically condemnative of others or have an attitude toward them just because they're still sinners. Because we still are too. And we need to get the mote out of our own eye before trying to get the beam out of someone else's. Do you have all the mold out of your own eye? No, you don't. I don't either. So therefore, why are we trying to judge others as being worse sinners than we are? Isn't that the comparison there? I only have mold in my eye. That's dirty water around the castle. But you've got a big tree in yours. Now, that's the way human beings tend to look at it, is it not? Your sins are worse than my sins. How come? How can we judge that? All sin is unto death, is it not? So what difference does it make who has the biggest one and who has the smallest one? If they kill you, they kill you. And you're dead eternally. So for us to say somebody else is worse than we are, we're stepping into something that we have no right to do. We're supposed to be trying to help cover sin, even as Christ helps cover sin. So fervent love is forgiveness. Fervent love is overlooking and not condemning others. This we need to be very, very careful of, because it is so simple and so easy, so human, so natural. 
to be condemnative of others. Use hospitality one to another without grudging. So if we love fervently, we'll be hospitable, giving, serving. That's what it is. Christ had an attitude of giving and of service. Anything he could do to save man from himself and Satan, he was willing to do. And we need to have that same mind to serve and help whenever we can and without begrudging it. Well, yeah, I'll do it, but I don't feel like it or I don't want to. Uh, you know, or why don't you do that for yourself? Well, sometimes people need to do things for themselves, but but we shouldn't do it with any kind of grudging. And you know, grudging can come at the at the point of sale. You can have a an attitude of not wanting to serve and help somebody, even as you feel like you are compelled to and need to do. But it can come way down line as well, the grudging. Because people often tend to keep score. Well, I did this for you, and I did that for you, and therefore you owe me one. No, we don't owe one. We don't keep score. Didn't Christ say that? Don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. Just serve, give, help, do whatever you can for whoever you can, and don't keep score. Don't, don't pay attention, left hand or right hand even, what each hand is doing. Well, if you, if you follow through with that, you can't keep score, can you? Because you're not paying any mind to what your left or right hand is doing other than just doing what you can. Therefore, there is no scorecard. So, when people are hospitable or act like they're giving, they act like they're loving, and they keep score in their mind and tally it up, well, I did this for you two years ago, ten years ago, whatever, you still owe me, is their attitude. That's grudging. And that can be, again, at the point of the sale, or it can come years later. And it may have been there all along. It's, it's a satanic attitude. It's not godly. God forgives and moves on. What does He say? Lamentations. I give you a clean, fresh start every morning when the sun comes up. God gives us that. We don't have to worry about yesterday and the past. We've got to worry about today and tomorrow. Now, human beings worry about the past. They'll bug you about your past, will they not? You bet they will. But that's not godly. That's ungodly. That's satanic. Satan is the accuser of the brethren. And any time we become accusers, we are satanic. We're playing into the hands of Satan. I hope we realize that. We have no room, no excuse for a grudge, for holding things against people. We have to let them move forward even as we wish to move forward. You pray for the forgiveness of your sins, don't you? Don't we, every one of us, probably pray every day that the things we did the past day we be forgiven of? We were a little selfish or a little this or a little that or a lot something else. And we really, really hope God forgives us, don't we? We wouldn't make the prayer if we didn't. Are we going to give people 
around us the same latitude that we want for ourselves. You've got to love them as much as you love yourself. And we love ourselves fervently. So therefore, you've got to love each other fervently. And not bear grudges or keep score or any such thing. Yesterday should be gone and forgotten. As much as is possible to forget. Certainly to forgive and forget as much as is possible. Do we live up to that? We better. Because that's the way Christ and His Father think. You think God's going to remind you or Christ is going to remind you throughout all eternity what you did when you were 17 or 26 years old? No, He will not. He says, your, your sins will be removed as far as the east is from the west. That's as far as it can get. It will never be mentioned again. When you rise to meet Christ in the air, your judgment will already have been made. We will not sit before Christ as sheep and goats and be separated to the left and the right. That's being done already. This is the time of our judgment as a goat or a sheep. The millennium, those people have their chance to sit before Christ and be judged one way or the other. And the great white throne's judgment the same. But if you rise to meet Christ in the air, that means you've been forgiven. It means you've been glorified and immortalized. And you're not going to have to sit down and go over your sins with Christ. They will have all been forgiven and you will have already been glorified. What, what point would there be at saying, well, yeah, you know, I, I got you here, but boy, it was against my better judgment. I had trouble getting over what you did in 1987 or whenever. No, he's not going to play. He doesn't play those games. You'll be the bride of Christ. Now, think about it. A husband and wife on this earth get married, and they start off toward their honeymoon. What do they do that first night? They go out to dinner or something and, and sit and recount everything that they can find that's wrong with their new mate? That's not what's on their mind, is it? I don't think so. What's on their mind is let's get closer than we've ever been. <laughs> let's enjoy each other. Let's love each other. And when Christ marries His bride, He's going to have that same attitude. He's not going to sit you down and go over all the reasons you shouldn't be there, but, oh, well, I forgave you, and I guess I'll accept you as my wife after all. Now, nah, there won't be any of that. That's going to be a joyous occasion. And you'll never have your sins mentioned to you again. Why do we bring up something somebody did last year, five years, ten years, forty years ago? Why do we do that? It's not godly. It's satanic. You're a tool of Satan when you do that. Verse 10, As every man has received the gift, even so serve the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Same, saying the same thing I've been already talking about here. No grudging. But we've all received the gift of the Holy Spirit, of conversion, of not living like we used to out in the world. And we like to be think that when we 
were baptized, our sins were washed away. We like to think at Passover every year that it is an official recognition that the past year is forgiven and gone. And we always feel better and feel cleaner and feel closer to God after the Passover service than we did the day before, don't we? Well, we allow that for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Christ be shed for you and hope that your past is done away and the past year is washed away and then you won't let somebody else's past be washed away. You've got to still hold it against them. Can we see how dastardly that is? How selfish? How upside down and backward and ungodly? Even so, serve the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. God has given us grace, mercy, and forgiveness. We have to extend it to others as good stewards of the grace we've been given. <coughs> Verse 11 then, If any man speak, let him speak as the words of God. Oracles simply means the words of God. Uh, the words written in the Bible in the Old Testament, and those things not limited to the calendar in Romans 3. Well, the oracles of God are the sayings, and many of His sayings He wrote down for us. So if you speak, let it be of the things of God, the things God approves, the things God has written that He has presented to us for us. If any man minister or serve, let him do it as of the ability which God gives. Don't hold back. Do the best you can under the circumstances. Whatever abilities God's given, uh, if you're there to minister and to serve, and God has ordained such, then do the best you can. That God in all things may be glorified through Emmanuel, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So, everything we do should be here to glorify Christ. He is deserving of honor and glory and praise as King of kings and Lord of lords and Lord of hosts. Uh, after all He went through for us, we need to be bending everything we say, everything we do, every service we give toward glory, praise and dominion toward Him forever and ever. And then He says, so be it. Amen. Uh, this is a true saying. This is important that underlines it, that everything be done to the glory of God. We're not here to glorify ourselves, and we're not here to diminish others. We're here to glorify God. Verse 12, then he says, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. You know, if we go, if we go through a trial, a trouble, a tribulation, and all oh, this is awful. How, why did this happen? Uh, if we see others going through trials, we might say, well, they must have sinned. Well, they wouldn't be going through that if they hadn't sinned. That's not necessarily so. Did Christ sin? No, He didn't. Did He go through fiery trials? Oh, you bet He did, more than anybody ever has. So, trials, troubles, and tribulation are not necessarily chastening. Now, chastening does come from God on every son whom he loves. So, yes, God will paddle us. 
God will put us through things sometimes to teach us things, like He did Job. He went through an awful lot there, not because of anything necessarily He'd done wrong, but because of His attitude of self-righteousness that He had, and that had to be dealt with. So He went through some pretty fiery trials to teach Him, to learn from the things that He suffered. So we're all going to suffer different trials. But rejoice, inasmuch as you are partakers of Christ's sufferings. So, he suffered, and we have to expect to suffer. Okay? Take it in stride. Don't think it's strange. Don't think that you suddenly are picked on or being treated worse than anybody else. No, we all have our trials and our troubles to go through, just as Christ did that when His glory shall be revealed, you may be glad also with exceeding joy. So, He's going to reveal His glory soon when He returns to this earth. And our glory will also occur at that time. And we can be glad with exceeding joy that we've gone through trials, troubles, tribulations, chastenings, sufferings of all kind, but then suddenly they're all forgotten. They're all in the past. What does he say? No more tears, no more sorrow, no more upset. Everything will be good from then on. I can't imagine it. But he says it's true, and I believe him. Verse 14, If you be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are you. If you suffer persecution because of obeying God or seeking to obey God, then that ought to make us happy because we're being persecuted for once for the right thing. For the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. The Spirit of glory of God rests upon you. It is the Spirit of God that is going to glorify us. And that glory rests on you. It may not be glorified yet, but it rests on you if you are being reproached for serving God. On their part, he is evil spoken of, but on your part, he is glorified. So, if we obey and serve God, he's glorified in us. How, how it must warm his heart when he sees us actually do what he wants us to do. Remember what I said earlier, nearly seven billion people on this earth and nearly every one of them going absolutely contrary to God in every way. And then he sees a very few, just a few thousand who are seeking to obey him. Now the contrast must be incredible in what he feels. If he sees you working so hard to try to serve Him. Doesn't that glorify the name of Christ? Now, we see through a glass darkly, and we sometimes have trouble seeing all our blessings and understanding how much blessing we really do have living on this wonderful place that God has created for us and the wonders of our own bodies and the things that God has made for us to enjoy. And we get bogged down in our own little troubles and trials and tribulations and attitudes and uh, relationships with others. And we can feel so put upon. 
but realize that if you're serving God, how few there are and how it must how it must make the Father and the Son feel to see a few of us who are working at serving Him. <clears throat> but let none of you suffer as a murderer, or as a thief, or as an evildoer, or as a busybody in other men's matters. If, you, if you're reproached, be reproached for doing what you're supposed to be doing, not for be doing evil. So, even being busybodies and gossips and Getting involved in other people's business is something we need not do. We need to tend to our own affairs and take care of our own flocks and herds and be sure we're doing what we ought to be doing and not being, not worrying and being busybodies in what somebody else is doing. Mind your own business. Take care of your own business. Yet if any man suffers as a Christian... Let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. Now, if we suffer for sin, we should be ashamed, and we should quit sinning. But if we suffer from following Christ, <coughs> then glorify God and thank Him that you can suffer even as Christ suffered. For the time is come. The judgment must begin at the house of God. But the time was there. Peter said it was there. He and Paul and James and John and members of the church were being judged at that time. We're judged on our lifetime. And our lifetimes are coming to an end, as I said, whether we're young or old, when Christ returns. So judgment is now upon us, especially if we've been have repented and been converted and are being converted and baptized in God's Spirit given to us through the laying on of hands. Uh, our judgment is now. And if it first begin at us, what shall be or the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? So we're being judged. Those around us are not. But they're also living in sin and degradation. Thankfully, they'll have their chance. But he says, if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? They're not going to be in the first resurrection. They'll have a chance later on in a physical resurrection. But the righteous are scarcely saved. Now, God wants to give us eternal life. He says it's His good pleasure to give us eternal life. But even though it is His good pleasure, it is His aim, His goal, His desire, and He wants you and me, He wants every one of us to make it into His kingdom. He loves us all that much. But can you say, hey, I got it made, I, you know, I got no problem, I'm going to be there. You may not be, but, but I'm going to be. <laughs> no, the righteous are scarcely saved. Now, who are the righteous? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Peter, Paul, John. Those are righteous people. They were judged righteously and put in Hebrews 11 as being in the kingdom of God. Now, those people were barely saved. And if we are saved, it's going to be barely, by the skin of our teeth, through the mercy of God. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and the penalty of sin is death. 
So, it is going to take the blood of Christ to save us. That means we barely make it. (laughs) That means that every sin has to be forgiven. That none of us have lived up to it. And without the blood of Christ, none of us would be saved. So, the righteous are scarcely saved. It's nothing to do with them and how great they are. It's the blood of Christ and the mercy that covers our sins that makes it possible for us to be in the kingdom of God. He saves us. We don't save ourselves. It's the grace of God. Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to Him in well-doing as unto a faithful Creator. So he says, even if you do suffer, stay committed to God and keep doing good. We're created unto good works. Grace alone will not save us. He will extend grace and pardon for those who are trying to do well and to do good works. You can't save yourself by works because your sin will kill you. So it has to be the the blood of Christ. It is law and grace. It is keeping the law and receiving grace when you have broken it. It's not law or grace. It takes both. So we need to continue in well-doing, fervently loving one another, being hospitable without grudging, doing everything we can to help one another, and then trusting in the grace of God and our well-doing that He will have favor and mercy upon us. That's what this is all about. Well, let's stop there for today.